0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is St. Louis, Gateway to Genocide. Part one of our conversation with Walter Johnson on his book, The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States, published by Basic Books. We'll open with Skin Deep from Duke Ellington's Black, Brown, and Beige performed here by Louis Belson and his all-star orchestra, featuring St. Louisan Clark Terry on Flugelhorn. Terry's first album was released in 1955, and he performed with Duke Ellington during his career-reviving Newport Jazz Festival appearance the very next year. Over 50 years later, in 2010, at the age of 89, Clark Terry received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, an honor he shares with trumpeters Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, and fellow St. Louisan Miles Davis. Clark Terry was born in St. Louis, Missouri on December 14, 1920, and attended Vashon High School. That's important information in St. Louis, trust me. Vashon opened in 1927 and was the second high school for black students after Sumner High School, which was established in 1875. Vashon is located on Laclede Avenue, Laclede Avenue runs from east to west starting in Midtown and running through the Central West End, stopping at Forest Park. Laclede demarcates the official division line between North and South St. Louis, named in honor of Pierre Laclede, a French fur trader who founded St. Louis in 1764 in what was then Spanish Upper Louisiana, or rather in what was then territory inhabited by multiple indigenous tribes like the Osage, the Miami, and the Sioux. There are currently no federally recognized tribes in the state of Missouri. Most of the indigenous people who once inhabited land in Missouri were murdered or forced to leave and resettle in quote-unquote Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Kansas, during the Indian Removal Act of 1830. And as Ishmael says in Chapter 1 of Moby Dick, loomings, this is the key to it all. St. Louis was a staging post for Indian removal and imperial expansion, where many of the so-called great generals of the Civil War were trained in Indian killing, and the wealth of St. Louis grew on the backs of its poor residents, from slavery through redlining and urban renewal. But it was once also America's most radical city, home to communist soldiers and newspaper editors. site of the Civil War's first general emancipation and the nation's first general strike The Great Railroad Strike of 1877, where we'll end part one of our conversation. Walter Johnson, the Winthrop Professor of History and Professor of African and African-American Studies at Harvard University, grew up in Columbia, Missouri, about 100 miles west of St. Louis. His recent books are River of Dark Dreams, Slavery and Empire in the Cotton Kingdom, and Soul by Soul, Life Inside the Antebellum Slave Market. We begin with Lewis and Clark, romanticized explorers opening the path to manifest destiny and the great white way of violence. And now, St. Louis, The Gateway to Genocide, with Walter Johnson on Interchange on WFHB.
1: Honestly, uh, as, as I wrote the book, I, people would say, well, what's the argument of your book? And a lot of it was just more or less, can you believe this? <laughs> you know I mean, that, that was, you know, I, I, I was surprised as I found things just like anybody else. I'm not one who believes that um, the history of the United States is that of um, an inevitable Although sometimes troubled march to freedom, I, have a, I do have a darker view of that. But I think that that, that view is um, based on, on the sources uh, um, provided by the past rather than, than sort of any um, exclusively prior ideological commitment on my part.
0: Well, um, it does seem we we have to understand ideological commitments, I suppose, when we think about how we're educated or educated to ignorance uh, for the most part or imagine that there is a history that's already written and if you try to uh, look back into the history, you're trying to do something to it that shouldn't be done. Uh, imagining that history wasn't written by certain people with certain perspectives in the first place
1: is... Yeah, abso- absolutely. Yeah, right. right. You know, some people have objected to the... To the characterization of Abraham Lincoln in the book as a settler militiaman. He was in the Illinois uh, militia, right? <laughs> so, 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 you know, so, so that, that, that's just, and they were fighting a war uh, against Native Americans in Illinois, in Illinois. So I think there's a certain amount of just basic kind of empirical truth telling that people find. Um, objectionable. Now, you know, the, the fact is, is that I am generally, I guess, um, dispositionally opposed to, I don't know, on, on a very basic level, to meanness and to powerful people taking advantage of and, um, misusing less powerful people. And I am specifically engaged with the, the history of empire and, and what I call racial capitalism in the United States. And I'm, I'm outraged by a lot of that history. And so it is unquestionably true that that, that, that outrage also comes through the, the language of the book. I guess, you know, my question is, well, shouldn't we be outraged by a lot of this? I, I think that a lot of the, the things that I discovered... Um, even as a as a fairly critical dissident person, were were surprising to me. I see that as an appropriate intellectual, ethical, and aesthetic response, rather than you know some kind of artificial transposition of of some kind of agenda onto the past.
0: Mm-hmm. It's just kind of an interesting thing the way people approach these things now, as if revealing the reality as the title of your book is you know revealing the broken heart of america really the realities of what has happened in the past are uh, they're they're necessarily instructive to us uh, as we go forward. There are no new stories in some sense, right? Even though they're revelations, uh, we keep having many of the same stories over and over again. Uh, let's start with the idea that um, we're in St. Louis. You know, what, why St. Louis? I mean, obviously, it's the it's a big part of the book is to say how central St. Louis is. And people may forget the centrality or the westernness, right? Uh, the the edge of the frontierness that St. Louis was. You also had a personal reason for sort of discovering a about St. Louis, right?
1: In 2013, I got invited to do a lecture in St. Louis about more or less a topic of my choosing. But the date that was set for that was October of 2014. And Darren Wilson shot Michael Brown on August the 9th of 2014. And so by the time that I was scheduled to go out there, the Ferguson uprising was in full stride. I I guess I felt in some way called to try to talk about that. I felt like it would be an evasion to go to St. Louis and talk about something else. And so I started to look into something that was very far from my own professional work, but closer to some of the, the way that I view the world and carry myself in the world, which was the political economy of the city of Ferguson. And of course, the thing that struck me immediately was that there was a $26 billion a year corporation within the city limits of Ferguson, Emerson Electric. And so the question seemed exigent to me to try to figure out, well, how, how could you have a police department, a city government that was urging the police department to create revenue through these pickyune traffic tickets and municipal code violations? And they're struggling to sweat revenue out of this poor and working class population in the city when you have this huge corporation. That kind of is what took me back to, to took me back to Missouri, I suppose, and, and and got me interested in St. Louis. You know, as I began the book, I was struck by the role that the city of St. Louis played in the military and imperial history of the United States. The St. Louis Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis was the um, headquarters of the Western Department of the Army for the 19th century, for most of the 19th century, all the way up through the Civil War, and so most of the Indian Wars in the West were either staged or supported out of Jefferson Barracks. To then set side by side the history of empire and Indian removal in St. Louis with the history of what what soon came to me to seem an emphasis on the exclusion and um, removal of free black and eventually all black people from Missouri and from the West, Um, and to see that the way that those things were combined in the idea of the West as a white man's country, I think um, then set the tone for the book.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's guest is Walter Johnson, author of The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. St. Louis turns out to be the outpost for military training in Indian killing and removal and home to legal decisions that would bleach the Constitution worse than even the Three-Fifths Clause. And as awful as it was and is... There are reasons to think an alternate course is possible involving 19th century communism and organizing against the priests of property. So you begin with Lewis and Clark, and it's one of those sort of, you know, history lesson questions, you know, we might ask ourselves. You know, Lewis and Clark are probably on the – maybe, I would say, on most, uh, what, elementary school lips even. You know, you start to learn the history of, of exploration. Obviously, we don't talk empire <laughs> in elementary school, but exploration is something kids like to talk about and think about. So here here is exploration of the new world, right, in some sense, and and – this is like history kind of unmoored from place often. These guys are just traveling into the heart of, you know, the the new world darkness um, and mapping out what would be the U.S. But it's a very specific act. And these are very specific things happening. And these are very specific men of specific time and temperament who have their own ideas. So why start with William Clark uh, and Meriwether Lewis?
1: I think that I was interested in the notion of mapping. And the interest, you know, in the notion of possession through mapping, right? So, so that once something is, is mapped, I mean, that makes it more easily governable. But the real thing that struck me about about Lewis and Clark is, is first of all, you know, I think that the, the way that I thought about it was that they were soldiers. This was a United States military mission. And so as opposed to exploration, I thought the you know, that the word, I mean, again, to come back to the question of trying to use words honestly, I thought that the word reconnaissance made more sense. And it's a reconnaissance in the service of a commercial vision of empire. So they're been instructed to, you know, meet the native peoples of the Missouri Valley and explain to them that now they are subordinate to the United States of America, but also to to survey the commercial potential, particularly for the fur trade. What then struck me was that these imperial claims, the the sorts of speeches that, that Lewis and Clark delivered as they traveled up the river, were wildly disproportionate in relationship to their actual Ability, right. In the sense that they had no ability to control territory at all. And they were, um, in many ways, completely dependent upon Native American people, not only for knowledge, um, although in almost entirely for the, the sort of geographic knowledge that they used to get up the river, but, but even to survive, over the, particularly over the first winter, which they, they spent with the Mandan at the Mandan villages um, over the winter of 1804. Over time, the, the commercially oriented fur traders of St. Louis and the United States military, and Clark really formed a, a kind of a, he was in a position to mediate between those two interests, um, began to assert themselves more forcefully in, in the West through, um, through taking control um, and taking control in this instance is a, is a military action of the fur trade. Also beginning, well, continuing the process of dispossession and removal that had begun in the 16th century um, in, in Florida but, and in California, but um, in the 17th century in Jamestown. And, um, that I think forms the, you know, the, the story of Clark is he's somebody who sits at the, at the juncture of a world in which whites, Europeans, Anglos, French people, traders, um, had, had to live in a world where, that was controlled by Indians and the way that they overthrew that world and, um, and dispossessed and finally Murdered many of those who who had lived in that world, and that and and Clark, um, after the expedition, became the superintendent of the United States Indian Agency, sitting at St. Louis, and really oversaw a lot of that process of of dispossession and removal. The interesting thing about well, nearly every page is
0: interesting, but people are inhabiting this world in the ways that they're sort of creating it as well. And and it's it's just kind of an interesting thing as you begin to map the sort of genealogy of terror in some sense that begins here, doesn't begin here, but really starts to hunker down and spread out in a kind of medial way, I suppose, or out from St. Louis goes, goes terror. But Clark is interesting because he becomes really a, a sort of a bureaucratic functionary in a lot of ways.
1: Right. He's an imperial functionary. Right. And he is, I think, to some degree – trying to mediate relationships between settler whites and Native Americans on the part of the United States of America. And so there is a very um, interesting moment where he actually asks, um, informs a group of of white settlers that they are going to need to, to move because they've settled on land that is designated to be, I believe, Shawnee land. And that position which Clark tries to occupy a position that reflects the, the old world, becomes increasingly untenable in Missouri after the War of 1812 as more and more white settlers move to Missouri from places like um, Virginia in particular. And these white settlers have no sympathy at all for the, the work of diplomacy and trade that Clark has spent much of his life exercising. You know, we don't want to romanticize the imperial skills of of William Clark who was responsible for the dispossession or removal of almost 100,000 people, but it is also important to to recognize that the particular variety of sort of murderous expansionism that characterized Missouri after 1812 was different from the world of the fur trade.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you basically say, you know, they're, they have little use for Indians. You know, uh, the only good Indian is a dead Indian at that point.
1: That became the, the new, right, all of the, the knowledge that, that Clark had accrued became less less important than, than military knowledge.
0: It's time for a break. This is Charles Creef and the Jazzomaniacs with Market Street Stomp, Born in Ironton, Missouri, Kreath spent much of his professional life as a trumpeter, saxophonist, and bandleader aboard riverboats owned by Streckfus Steamers. Market Street is the main street in St. Louis for parades and public festivals. Stay with us for more on the Broken Heart of America when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our guest today is Walter Johnson, author of The Broken Heart of America, which finds St. Louis a staging ground for violent expansionism and white supremacy. In this segment, we'll hear about a Civil War hero whose first call to duty was killing Indians in California. In the Sacramento River Massacre of 1846, John C. Fremont, a future nominee for president, directed the killing of men, women, and children of the Wintu tribe in what has been called a scene of slaughter unequaled in the West. This is a centralized place, you know, so having been uh, lived in and around St. Louis for most of my life, you know, I never thought about what St. Louis was, you know, where, you know, how it had begun and what it, what it was continuing to mean in a lot of ways. It was just a place I lived, a place I went through. I understood it only in my own moment, I suppose.
1: Uh, Of all of the things, you know, there there are certain things in the book that I believe that I've discovered that everybody in St. Louis knows. And I tell people about how, you know, what a bright boy am I and look what I found out. And they said, you know, they've all known that all along. One thing that I think that people are consistently people who live in St. Louis today are consistently surprised by is the historical importance of Jefferson Barracks. Mm and of St. Louis in the military history of the 19th century. Even with, or or perhaps because of, the romanticized notion of the gateway to the West um, and the way that that summons up a kind of a vision of um, people departing in in Conestoga wagons, heroic white settlers departing in Conestoga wagons, I guess in a way that's um, so fully Come to stand in for what we mean, what the gateway of the West means historically. That somehow Jefferson Barracks, which was, in many ways, the real gateway to the West, the 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 gateway through which the United States Army spread out across the West, has been forgotten. Yeah, no, that
0: that really was uh, obviously a very um, uh, fascinating and again heartrending. Uh, look at history in some ways to, to see it as a continuation of, of what the U.S. is globally as well. You know, this military dispossession, uh, machine as much as anything else. But uh, thinking about Jefferson Barracks too, uh, you point out that most of the quote unquote well-known generals in Civil War history begin there in many ways, or at least had, did their time there, you know, training to kill Indians as much as anything else.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, one thing that, that I, I didn't really express this as a direct argument in the book, although I tried to signal the possibility of the argument. One of the things that military historians worldwide look at the civil war for is as one of the first total wars, as a place where the idea of a punitive war emerged, as a place where the idea of punishing a population for the actions of its government as an aim of the war emerged and particularly, you know, in in Sherman's March to the Sea. So it did strike me that so many of the officers in civil war on both sides had served in um, the United States military and had been headquartered at Jefferson Barracks and were very familiar from certainly from the 1840s on with the notion of um, pedagogical warfare, with the notion of inflicting um, disproportionate casualties on um, non-military populations in order to bring uh, racial social order to the countryside. Mm -hmm. And so I I do think that there's a connection there. There's certainly, I think, a, um, a lesson there. And it's a lesson which I think that you know, we, we haven't quite got around to, to learning um, in this country, which is about the relationship between what we think about as the history of freedom, i.e. the history represented by the Union Army in the Civil War, and the history of imperialism. And I, I think that if if one takes seriously, as we should, the disproportionate um, genocidal character of the violence against Native Americans. A lot of the people who we imagine to be the heroes of American history, and I'm, partic- I'm thinking particularly of uh, characters in the history of St. Louis, like John C. Fremont, who were terrifically successful as Union Army officers and even opponents of slavery in St. Louis, were also war criminals Based on their service in California in the in the 1840s, and both Fremont and Lyon participated in terrible, terrible atrocities in California, and I think that that's a part of American history that that we haven't we haven't reckoned with. Even even as as the the country begins to struggle with the legacy of the Confederacy and the you know Confederate monuments. We have a, a ways to go, you know we, we have a, some union monuments that that are gonna look different once we take seriously the history of, of empire and settler colonialism.
0: yeah, that that was really Fremont in particular was uh, was, was an interesting discovery simply because um, I found myself in the book like forgetting the California episode when I got to the part where he was, you know, a kind of a stalwart hero of, you know, freeing uh, enslaved Africans. Uh, and then I was like, oh, wait, that's the same guy. Um, so, it yeah, so things like that are, are difficult. Um, even as you're reading them, they're difficult to hold in your head.
1: Um, well, well, part of the, the just basic lesson of the, the book is to imagine the categories of the United States history and United States history itself as being always an imperial history and that that i think causes us to to reflect on it on it differently
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's guest is Walter Johnson, author of The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis, and the Violent History of the United States. St. Louis turns out to be the outpost for military training in Indian killing and removal, and home to legal decisions that would bleach the Constitution worse than even the Three-Fifths Clause. And as awful as it was and is... There are reasons to think an alternate course is possible involving 19th century communism and organizing against the priests of property. Yeah, well, so that chapter, uh, and again, we're only on chapter two here, but, uh, but it ends, and I do want you to talk about two, the two key characters there, if you can, because it seems to me that we, we continue to live in, uh, Thomas Hart Benton's and William Hanley's world in, in a lot of ways, and, uh, we sort of confront those ideologies and those types of characters Uh, still. Um, so, one thing you, at the very end of the chapter, you write two, two perfect things, really, I think. One is if Benton was the prophet of the westering imperium of the city of St. Louis, uh, William Harney was its avenging angel, volatile, implacable, and unrepentant. And then at the end, you say genocide was the vanguard of empire and anti-blackness followed immediately in its wake. So there's, there's the crux of your book really, or the, the sort of whole story as it unfolds throughout the rest of the book, um, is that you follow this, uh, this sort of train of genocide or these, these kind of lessons learned, uh, on the frontier or in, in, you know, dealing with the, the empire in Indian country, basically, um, as it, as it moves into anti-blackness. And, uh, so Thomas Hart Benton is kind of, again, this idea of whiteness is, is essential, and he's actually quite eloquent about about it, um, whereas William Hanley is, the you know, one of the most horrible people in the world, I guess, but, you know, it, it's a long list of horrible people we're dealing with. These people have their ideologies, they have their beliefs, they have to make these things uh, okay, right? It's okay to kill women and children. It's not okay to kill anyone, obviously, I mean, to me anyway, (laughs) but for, you know, in this situation, you know, William Hanley termed, you know, woman killer by the Sioux, there's no, there's nothing here that, that you can even begin to talk about as honor or, you know, dignity or, you know, the nobility of doing particular fighting, you know, there's nothing here that's good, it seems like, but Thomas Hart Benton waxes poetic frequently, so talk a little bit about what it is to be Bentonite or to have this idea of, of the, of future history of the United States in Benton's eyes
1: there's a quotation from a I guess a philosopher and historian who I very much admire Walter Benjamin who says that every document of civilization is at the same time a document of barbarism yeah perfect and i think that 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 in a way reflects the 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 sort of dialectic of the relationship between benton and harney benton is a believer in um in freedom but of a, in a very particular sort of freedom, which is the freedom for um, white people to spread across the continent and flourish commercially. And he is, in his own mind, um, incredibly democratic about that because he wants to take the public domain of the United States and distribute it at very low prices, including the price zero to um, impecunious white people who who can then get a stake now the fact is is that is an imperial and genocidal vision and benson knows it is and occasionally um reflects openly upon that but it's left to people like harney to really enforce that and harney is someone who in um i think it's 1834 killed an enslaved woman in his mother-in-law's household in st louis he was unable to find his keys. He thought she had hidden them. He beat her to death. Um, he fled the city. You know that the, there was a scandal, um, and then went on. His trial was moved to Franklin County, outside of St. Louis County, and he was acquitted. Um, and then he goes on to be a um, again, in, you know, a war criminal. In the in the Seminole War, by any contemporary standard, a war criminal. Um, by the standard of those who supported the Seminole War, he's a hero, and he's someone who is um, willing to do what needs to be done. You know, in, in this sort of pragmatic version of imperial white supremacy, and then goes on to be active in the in the wars in the 1850s in the West, and again, it perpetrates an enormous atrocity killing, I think, I think somewhere around 700 people at a place in in present day Nebraska called Ash Hollow, people who are running away, uh, women and children who are running away from the United States Army. So, you know, Benton's vision, which is um, a vision of white uplift and democracy and prosperity is never separable from, from Harney's vision. That's the white man's country. That's the vision of the white man's country in the West in the, in the 19th century. And that, I think, I try to follow that idea through the, um, the politics of the Civil War. I try to follow it through the way that um, Lincoln is at once gradually moving towards emancipation, even as he remains a proponent of imperial expansion and Indian removal and Indian war and genocide. And through a set of sort of delicate maneuvers, complicated maneuvers on the part of, I think, Lincoln and other representatives of the United States to try to balance the gradual move towards emancipation, the gradual recognition that... Um, The success of the Union Army effort depends upon emancipation and the enlistment of black soldiers with the need to satisfy, pacify settler whites by providing them with more and more territory that they will um, be able to convert into um, the white man's country.
0: It's time for another break. This is Terry's Mood off of the album Louis and Clark Expedition 2 from Louis Belson and Clark Terry. Stay with us for more with Walter Johnson on the history of St. Louis when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is St. Louis, Gateway to Genocide. We begin this segment by following the money and consider St. Louis as the center of a burgeoning military-industrial complex, and then we turn to what our guest Walter Johnson calls a Western variety of anti-blackness, removalist, and exterminationist, that is, genocidal. (laughs) Well, one thing that we skipped over and it's easy to do because there's so many things to deal with, but I think is essential to the uh the future of St. Louis after we're starting, you know, in the uh early 19th century is the sort of creation of a uh, sort of commercial enterprise, you know, the creation of the people who own St. Louis and continue to own St. Louis in the way that um, you know, money and property become established through owning this territory and, and managing these commercial ventures. And this continues, uh, throughout, uh, you know, the, it's a, it's a essential aspect of each, each chapter is, you know, where the money is accumulating as well. And and these families that are accumulating it and how they're important.
1: Yeah. I am trying to track out the, the history of, um, accumulation. So, the beginning of the book spends quite a bit of time trying to figure out how the fur trade worked, and um, to figure out then the way that the the fur trade families became so prominent in St. Louis and were prominent slaveholding families right. um, and also to think about the history of nineteenth century St. Louis, early nineteenth century St. Louis as the beginning of a kind of a military industrial complex in the Midwest because of all of the lead in the Mississippi Valley. And so really the Mississippi Valley between Herculaneum in Missouri and up to Galena in Illinois is a a place where there's a lot of lead mining. And so lead mining was essential to um, the arms industry of, of the 19th century. And so then to, to try to follow um, the different sorts of economic shapes of empire and white supremacy through the 19th century and through the 20th century. And there's an important, for me at least, an important kind of conceptual um, and political point to that, which is that this is not simply a history of racism, in my mind it's not a history of racism unmoored from the specifics of political economy it's a history of racial capitalism it's a history of the way that economic exploitation or economic extraction and racial domination um, interacted over time and changed form over time and so the book is framed around a history of removals Beginning with Indian removal and then following all the way, way up to the present day. But that sort of repetition of the enclosure and removal of Native American and African American people happens in concert with different forms of economic organization, whether they be the settler colonial um, imperialism of the 19th century or the industrial organization of the early 20th century or the real estate capitalism of the middle of the 20th century. I try to, to be pretty specific about the forms of political economic organization that accompany these different moments in the history of racial removal and white supremacy
0: yeah it's easy to kind of stick on to the the names that you that many of us will know and if you know st louis at all also names you'll know it's easy to kind of forget that underneath it all are the sort of machinations of the legalisms of of empire as well and the way in which things happen that none of us that don't have lots of money and power and lawyers and whatnot,
1: have any clue about how they happen. <laughs> so, uh, That's right. No, yeah. that, you know, honestly, that was where I began with the book. I think that when you get into the political economy of how it is that municipal governance in the United States right now works and the levels of corporate subsidy um, involved in um, the, the tax abatements that I, that I write a quit quite a bit about the way that ordinary people are paying taxes to subsidize corporations. I actually think that's the kind of thing that if you explain to um, many people how that's working, they think it's outrageous. And so for me, there is an imperative in actually trying to understand what, what you were calling the machinations, the way that the abandonment of poor black people in the United States, but also poor white people in the United States, are related to one another. And the way that, that I suggest in the book that the policies that have been justified and supported because they are targeting initially or seem to be targeting other people, i.e., African American people or Native American people, come around and dispossess and discipline all people. You're listening to Interchange
0: on WFHB. Today's guest is Walter Johnson, author of The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. St. Louis turns out to be the outpost for military training in Indian killing and removal and home to legal decisions that would bleach the Constitution worse than even the Three-Fifths Clause. And as awful as it was and is... There are reasons to think an alternate course is possible involving 19th century communism and organizing against the priests of property. As, as we try to tie Indian removal, genocide to um, anti-blackness and black removal, as well and in many ways we could say genocide there too in a different form i suppose but it it begs the question is the assumption that a black person might be property at this time is that assumption enough to stop wholesale you know murder of people if an indian is determined inferior in in enough of a way to uh to outright murder because uh, because you can or because they're on your land uh is is it just simply the usefulness of the black person that stops white people from killing them at this time in in the ways that they killed indians
1: Yes. So that that gets to the really in a way to the heart of what I'm trying to talk about as a particularly Western variety of anti-blackness. And so what you're pointing out is that, say, in the in the history of the South, in the history of the expansion of slavery uh, across the Deep South into Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, there is a um, removalist and exterminationist attitude towards Native Americans, while there is a pro-Natalist attitude towards African Americans. Slavery in the South depends upon the reproduction of enslaved people. So social reproduction of, of the institution depends upon the biological reproduction of enslaved people. What I'm trying to argue is that there's a different tone to the dominant attitude towards African American people in the West. There are slaveholders, right? The Chouteau family, other families. But most of the people who moved to, to Missouri from Virginia were non slaveholding white people. And they were non slaveholding white people who were moving to Missouri partly because they felt like they were getting a raw deal in Virginia where because of the economic and political power that slaveholders had under the um, Three-Fifths Compromise, right? So the Three-Fifths Compromise regulates apportionment of legislative power, both in the United States of America, but also at the state level in Virginia. So the state of Virginia, they think, is being governed by a cabal of slaveholders who are not sufficiently respectful of the needs of non-slave holding white people. And so they want Missouri to be a place that is free of black people entirely, free of enslaved people because enslaved people, they see as the source of white inequality and um, without free people of color because free people of color, they regard as labor competition. And so I think that that's, that is really at the heart of what, what I see as the, Um, why it is that there is a removalist or exterminationist strain of anti-Blackness that I identify as being with the city of St. Louis and as being particularly Western. I mean, I'm also trying to figure out the roots of something that I think is enormously important in the history of the United States, which is the roots of a white supremacist variety of anti-slavery. So why it is that so many, you know, that there's such strong anti-slavery in much of the West, but that that anti-slavery is characterized by negrophobia, not by a desire to, you know, emancipate fellow human beings and fellow Christians and to live in um, equality with them, but by a desire to keep black people out of the West that part of the anti-slavery movement is one that i think is particularly pronounced in the midwest and has to do with the fear that non-slaveholding white people have of um slaveholders and the the power that enslaved people give and the entitlement that they believe they have to um dominion in missouri and the rest of the west
0: It's time for our final break. This is another from Charles Creeth and the Jazzomaniacs. This time it's The Market Street Blues. When we return, the real heroes of the Civil War turn out to be communists and colleagues of Karl Marx. Stay with us for more on Interchange on WFHB. To interchange on WFHB, our show is about St. Louis, Gateway to Genocide. If that sounds extreme, you might want to read Walter Johnson's new book, The Broken Heart of America. In this segment, Johnson reveals that there are positive examples of humanity even in St. Louis. Of course, it turns out it has to do with communism. But first, the Dred Scott case. Yep, it was filed in St. Louis as a freedom suit. Well, a lot of this is interesting because it certainly goes to a kind of white psychology that you're working through, or trying to work through, or presenting in 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 this book. Particularly, I think in the the Babylon of the New World, which is chapter six, where uh, Theodore Dreiser makes. Um, of a fascinating uh, character study in that kind of psychology as well. But, uh, quickly, the Dred Scott decision in particular, um, may explain that the, that a black man isn't a man.
1: Right. So, so, so the, the Dred Scott decision is, is twofold. One part of it is that the federal government does not have the right to determine the future of slavery in territories and all the way out to the Pacific. The other part is that, um, and this is the part that the Chief Justice Taney just writes on him his own is a decision that Dred Scott did not have any right to use the, the nation's courts, that he has no legal right to protection in the United States. So that effectively that black people, free black people, but also enslaved people live in the United States by the grace of white people. They have no rights which the white man is bound to respect. Now, white people can be, you know, generous to them and paternalistic, but but there's no legal basis for that. And so that is in the context of Missouri and of the particular parts of the Constitution that Tawney is using to make that case, that is a invitation to removal. Right. And indeed, people in Missouri take it as such and start to um, ask free people of color in St. Louis um, to to register in anticipation of removal in 1859. So it, it's what, what I'm trying to do there is is to think about the Dred Scott case as something which emerges from a place where there's some degree of tension between slaveholding whites and non-slaveholding whites and tries to realign the interests of both with the decision of the Supreme Court.
0: On one hand, you could say then it's you're free to kill a black person. But on the, on the other hand, you're not free to kill someone's property.
1: Right. I, I, that, that's it. And I think the idea is that a resolution that might make non-slaveholding white people happy is if all free people of color were enslaved and thus non-slaveholding white people could become slaveholders. Right, so, so where it, the history of Missouri to that point um, suggests some kind of political and economic conflict between slaveholding whites and non slaveholding whites, what the Dred Scott decision does is it tries to bring non slaveholding whites back into political alignment with slaveholders through the idea that, well, we could take all of these free people of color and enslave them, things would be much clearer and presumably some non-slave holding whites would benefit.
0: There's good happening in St. Louis as well, though. I think uh, I wanted to get to this chapter in particular, and, and I know you were interested in it as well, but there there's a confluence here of Marxism, communism, uh, and the Civil War. And so revolution and uh, all things that we might think of, or not be able to think of in this country as 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 being together. It's one of those things that I think confound people to say. Well, Marx and Lincoln are you know uh, coeval, right? You know you can imagine the Communist Manifesto, 1848, sort of prepping the way even for civil war in some sense. Uh, Marx writing you know, newspaper editorials on the civil war. People hold their histories in in countries in some way, right? So Marx happened over here, Lincoln happened over here, but in many ways they happened together you know, not those two men necessarily, but those ideas, those histories, they blend together and they blend together beautifully or difficultly in St. Louis.
1: Yeah, this is this something that I was um, surprised by. It's not a part of the history that I, I knew and I found it completely engrossing. And it made me feel Hopeful. So alongside the the history that we've been talking about, the history of imperialism and, and anti-blackness, I think the city of St. Louis has a very, very deep history of radicalism. And one of the sources of that radicalism is in the German immigrant community that's always been to some degree definitive of the history of St. Louis. And among those refugees from the revolution of eighteen forty eight, there, there's some pretty committed communists. Um, And so at the time of the Civil War in St. Louis, we find Joseph Wiedemeyer, who was publisher, the first publisher of uh, the Eighteenth Brumaire, and was the translator, I think, of the German Ideology, two of Marx's principal works of the 1840s and 1850s, and who has been credited by Angela Davis, among others, as being the the founder of American Marxism. Well, he's in St. Louis and in in the Union Army during the Civil War, and is in fact responsible for the um, fortification and artillery defense of the city of St. Louis. Along with him, there's a man called Franz Siegel, who was, a, again, a, a communist military refugee from the Revolution of 1848. And it's these people who make up um, John C. Fremont's general staff at the moment that Fremont, in August of 1861, declares a general emancipation in the state of Missouri. And that is a decision that is well in advance of any Kind of commitment coming out of um, the you know the higher levels of the Union Army or Washington D.C. and and Lincoln immediately countermanded that order, ordered Fremont to retract it, and when Fremont refused to to retract it, Lincoln himself countermanded the Emancipation Order.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's guest is Walter Johnson, author of The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis, and the Violent History of the United States. St. Louis turns out to be the outpost for military training in Indian killing and removal, and home to legal decisions that would bleach the Constitution worse than even the Three-Fifths Clause. And as awful as it was and is, there are reasons to think an alternate course is possible involving 19th century communism and organizing against the priests of property.
1: I'm, I'm interested in that moment, the moment in the history of St. Louis where these communists, committed communists, actually began to turn the Civil War into a war against property, particularly in the first instance, enslaved property, and the degree to which they were able to form an alliance with African American people who were leaving slavery in Missouri. And so there's a, and, and who, who both began to assist the Union army in the field. And then over the course of the war, increasingly enlisted in the Union army at what was then known as Benton Barracks which is in North St. Louis uh, around Fairground Park. So again there was a you know an extraordinary set of episodes in the history of the United States that I think have not been remembered in St. Louis with the you know in the same way that they have at at say in Gettysburg. Right. I mean, that 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 Fairground Park, which is today a somewhat beaten down park on the north side of St. Louis, was the site of the first and greatest enlistments of African-American soldiers into the United States military during the, during the Civil War. So it's a site of enormous historical importance. And then I tried to follow that legacy of interracial radicalism coming out of the Civil War up through the 1877 general strike in St. Louis, which was seen by all at the time as being uh, the high watermark of the railroad strike of, of 1877 that where the black and white workers in St. Louis briefly controlled the city an alliance of black and white workers controlled the city after calling a general strike. And they made the they made decisions about which trains came into the city, paying what rates production decisions about which factories were allowed to reopen under what sort of terms to produce what. And so for me, that's a noteworthy and to some degree inspiring legacy tell me if i'm wrong or not but isn't
0: that generally i mean those years anywhere generally the end of reconstruction
1: yes so what one would term the you know the the way that historians generally tell the history of the end of Reconstruction is with the disputed election, um, ironically, of of eighteen seventy-six. Well, the word compromise is called the compromise of eighteen seventy-seven. And as I say in my undergraduate lectures, the word compromise in American history, whether you're talking about the compromise of eighteen twenty or the compromise of eighteen fifty, the compromise of eighteen seventy seven, basically that means the white supremacists won. And what happened in the compromise of eighteen seventy seven is that there was an agreement to put the Republican presidential candidate, Rutherford B. Hayes, into office as president. But in return, he promised to pull federal troops out of the military occupation of the South, which effectively allowed the Democratic Party, which was the party at that point of redemption and white supremacy of white rule in the South, to retake the South. I try to argue that um, there was a a counter-revolution in um, St. Louis and in the United States after 1877, there was the counter-revolution of, of property and that the division of the Civil War was in some way healed or transformed into a shared interest in empire in Western Empire, in railroads, and in in Indian Wars through the 1870s um, and 80s. St. Louis became a different kind of imperial city in those years.
0: Yeah, and uh, kind of white reconstruction.
1: Right, absolutely. Yeah.
0: That's our show. We'll close with another one featuring St. Louis and Clark Terry from Louis Belson and his all-star orchestra, This is Emancipation Day, composed by Duke Ellington for his extended piece, Black, Brown, and Beige. This was part one of my conversation with Walter Johnson about his book, The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. We'll continue next week with part two and attend the famous, or rather infamous, 1904 World's Fair, where great men and women came to see a human zoo. We'll seek out forbidden pleasures with Sister Carrie author Theodore Dreiser, and we'll discover that one of the most influential city planners in the country's history was intent on removing its black population. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.